All right. Welcome in. Happy Monday, y'all. Happy Monday. We're here at night. This is weird for me. First night stream. I think we're going to learn a lot here tonight. Uh, get your get your thinking pants on. <laughs> High and tight. I am Sean Corey. You can find all my content and all my links at SeanVPlanet.com. You can send me gifts and cool stuff to my P.O. Box. Um, Sean Corey, S-E-A-N-C-O-R-Y, 330-172, Nashville, Tennessee, um, 37203. Big shout out to the dude who sent this to my P.O. Box. Uh, I'm always weird about uh, saying the names. <laughs> uh, unless they like tell me explicitly that they want to so you know who you are thank you for the rice farmer hat um super awesome gift it's like actually real too it's like pretty legit real kind of looks like it's like crooked or something like this side looks more but it's pretty legit it's like a real hat <laughs> it's like a very real hat i got two of them sent to me um with the intention to help my Irish skin, my Irish <laughs> potato farmer skin from getting burned when I work outside in the summer heat, the summer sun. But it's too nice to actually do that. You know, it's like too nice of a hat um, and just too awesome in general, <laughs> even though I totally would, because uh, I, I guarantee it would actually provide some good shade. Um, but yeah, my new job, I can't do it though. <laughs> New job, I'm not going to be able to um, wear it because it's like on an actual construction site with actual rules and regulations, um, which requires like hard hats <laughs> and actual construction gear, not Chinese rice farmer hats. But I'm wearing it today for this stream because it's the topic at hand. It seems fitted. It seems knit, it seems needed. Uh, I'm also trying the background music thing, <laughs> as you can hear. Let me know if it's annoying or if it's loud in the chat and let me know if you want it continued on future streams. I used to put music on my podcasts and stuff when I did the post editing and Zoomers and Millennials like seem to, you know, like that sort of thing to help out the uh, short attention spans. Um, but if it's something that bothers you, if it's something that you cannot handle, <laughs> like this stream or just going forward in the future, because I'm going to add more songs in the background in the future, if it's something that extremely bothers you, hit me up in my DMs, in my private messages, on my Discord, you know the drill. Follow my social media accounts for funny and insightful posts, <laughs> memes, video clips and stuff. Um, at Sean V. Planet on Instagram, Telegram, Gab, TikTok, Bertaria Times app, Social Galactic. My live streams are on YouTube, DLive, Periscope, and Trovo every Monday night at 8 p.m. Central. <laughs> it's weird saying that. Weird saying not Saturday. Live every Monday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, the one true time zone. And all the replays, as always, the video replays can be found on YouTube and Rumble. Um, BitChute just seems to not let me upload anymore. So I guess it, it was a good run on BitChute. <laughs> you can find like 55 of my episodes on BitChute. But after that, for some reason, they won't let me upload anymore. So find my YouTube and my Rumble.com page. For all my videos and then my podcasts are on almost every single podcast app out there whatever you use to stream podcasts um and then my clips channels are on gab tv and on youtube if you want the shorter versions of my uh ramblings and rants and, and streams 
And uh, yeah, just thank you guys for tuning in tonight. First night stream. I've done a couple night streams before, but regularly Monday night, my new time and place. Thank you for tuning in to my first one. Um, if you're here, send me questions, comments, topics in the chat, and I'll try to get to them all. If enough people donate lemons and diamonds and stuff on DLive, I'll open up the treasure chest during the stream. And thank you to all who donate. It is appreciated. Robear, Set of Acantus, Stuntman, Living Loving Bear, Burning Tree Bear, uh, Silosopher is always coming in hot with big donations. Berserker Bear, Andrew J, my girlfriend, Titty Bear, just all the bears, all the homies, all the groipers. Love it. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Um, for the support. I love it. I appreciate you. Y'all are all amazing. <laughs> Girlfriend's freaking out in the chat. Demon Hunter Bear, what's good, my dude? Hope all is well, brother. Um, music is just fine. Let it ride. So is Demon Hunter Bear. I like that. Stamp of approval. <laughs> Already. Uh, girlfriend says, I love you so much, but you're so extra. Yes, yes, fact. I am extra. <laughs> fact, I am extra. Um, yeah, so I'm going to start this stream off. So obviously we're talking about China today. i got my Chinese rice farmer hat on in celebration of that fact. It's going to be maybe a long stream. We'll see. Um, I did all this researching. <laughs> I did all this researching and reading up on the history of Christianity in China. It was really interesting. Over like the last three or four weeks, brought it up. Someone brought it up in the chat um, about a month ago. So I've been doing a deep dive on like China, Christianity in China, <laughs> like throughout the years and now, currently, because it's amazing, all of it. And I wrote out a whole essay that I was going to read <laughs> on stream tonight about the history over the years and then I stumbled upon these clips that basically just explained everything I was going to but so much better and with more detail and more insight so we're going to just start off by listening and or you know if you're if you're if you're watching this we're going to watch it because it's, it's got some good visuals um and if you're listening you'll obviously be listening to it instead of reading through my essay <laughs> instead of me just reading through my essay here um, but then we're going to get back into the more modern happenings of Christianity in China after this rundown of the history of the faith in that nation over the years. Uh, I think it covers about 1,500 years and then stops. Um, and then I'll pick up from there. I'll pick up reading from there. Um, if you don't want to watch or listen to the whole thing, and this stream is a replay for you right now, it will be like a 35-ish minute video. <laughs> so you can skip forward if uh, history is not something that interests you. So you can skip forward from here about 30, 35 minutes if you don't want to hear this or watch this. If you're here live, uh, sorry, you got to suffer through this <laughs> or enjoy this. I really like this stuff, so um, to me it's interesting. If not... Uh, maybe go do something, go wash some dishes or something for 30 minutes. <laughs> do some push-ups or, or learn a skill in, in the next 30 minutes um, and then come back. And if you are here, send me chats, comments, insights you have. Send me those lemons, those, those diamonds, those ice creams on DLive while we watch and listen to this. And yeah, I'll be back in like 30 minutes and we'll cover the rest of the history that it leaves off with. And then we'll talk about the awesome stuff that's happening in China right now, in the modern day. So enjoy. Hope you enjoy. Oh, yeah. 
Christianity, the largest religion of the Western world, and China, the oldest nation of the East, have interacted many times through history, as they still do today. However, as you will see, the coexistence has often been tumultuous with many unexpected events. The story of Christianity in China begins with silk. The Roman Empire imported silk from China since about the 1st century AD. However, the rise of the Persian-Sassanian Empire in the 3rd and 4th century, which was at war with Rome, broke the Silk Road and therefore considerably slowed down importation to the Roman Empire. In the 6th century, Emperor Justinian I of the Byzantine Empire decided to look for a solution. It was there that two monks of the Nestorian Church got their idea to make a fortune. The Nestorian Church, or Church of the East, follows the vision of Nestorius, Archbishop of Constantinople, who believed that Jesus was not truly God, but only partly divine and partly human. The two Nestorian monks were preaching Christianity in India. In 551 AD, they travelled to China and studied the process of silk making. It was probably there and then that Christianity ever entered the Chinese territory. The next year, the monks approached Justinian I, who agreed to mount an expedition to smuggle silkworms to the Byzantine Empire. In about 554 AD, the Eastern Roman Empire held its own silk monopoly. The first written trace of Christianity in China is barely older. A few decades later, another Nestorian missionary and his friends travelled to China, probably through the Northern Silk Road. His name was Alopen. The Nestorians had this time come to preach, bringing with them sacred texts and images. In 635, they arrived in Chang'an, the capital of the Tang Dynasty, and at the time largest city in the world. That same year, Emperor Gaozuo of Tang died. His son Taizong was a scholar and patron, and largely tolerant of all religions. He greeted the Nestorian missionaries and encouraged translation of their texts in Chinese. These were the first of the Jesus Sutras, adaptations of Christian texts in Chinese. Taizong ordered the documents be spread across the country. In 638, the Tang Emperor financed the construction of a Nestorian church in Chang'an, and 21 Nestorian priests were recognized. After his death in 649, his son Gaozong continued the policy of religious tolerance, and many more churches were built in China. Over the next couple of centuries, Christianity thrived in China, and Christian texts and images were produced. In 781, the Christian community of Chang'an erected a stele in a monastery, where they inscribed the chronicles of Nestorian movements in China, including the adventures of Elopen. It relates of a clear organization of the Church of the East with bishops and dioceses. However, as the Tang Dynasty lost more and more influence to regional military commanders called Jie Duoshi, so did Christianity in China. Repression against Christians and other religious groups started at the turn of the 8th century. Between 878 and 879, the rebel leader Huang Chao, having turned against the Tang Dynasty after his failure at the imperial examinations, led a massacre in the city of Guangzhou against foreigners. As I mentioned in my video about Judaism in China, links in the description below, members of many religions were killed, Muslims, Jews, Christians and Zoroastrians. Guangzhou was already a huge trading city, and the death toll could have been as high as 200,000. In 987, the Arab scholar Ibn al-Nadim mentions his interview in the Christian quarter of Baghdad of a monk sent to China to report on the state of Christian church there. The monk answered that Christianity was just extinct in China. The native Christians had perished in one way or another. The church which they had used had been destroyed. 
and there was only one Christian left in the land. A few Christian gravestones dating from later were discovered, but it was clear that the first era of Christianity in China had come to an end. A couple of centuries later, Christianity was brought back. This time, it did not come from the West, however, but from the invading Mongol Empire. After pillaging China, the Mongols installed the Yuan Dynasty, when Kublai Khan was crowned emperor in 1260. Kublai was the grandson of Temujin, more famously known as Genghis Khan. His father, Tolwai Khan, had had four sons through Sohaktani Beri, who was none other than an historian Christian. She was from the Karaite tribe, one of the several Mongol Turkic tribes who had converted to the Church of the East. After learning that there were indeed Christians in Eastern Asia, through the expansion of the Mongol Empire to Eastern Europe, Western Catholic missionaries started to travel to Mongol steppes to convert the Nestorians to Catholicism. Kublai Khan's personal faith leaned towards Tibetan Buddhism. However, due to the strong Christian influence in his family and the great diversity of his empire, he directed policies of religious tolerance. Meanwhile, two Westerners, Italian merchants from Venice, had left the West to avoid political instability and to look for better profit. They started traveling east. In 1266, they reached Beijing and arrived to the court of Kublai Khan. These adventurers, who were brothers, answered to the name of Niccolo and Maffeo Polo. Kublai Khan, who's supposed to be the person in the throne here, received them. Intrigued by the Western world, he wrote a letter to the Pope in Rome asking him to send a hundred educated Christians to come and teach Western customs and Catholicism in China. He also requested oil from the Lamp of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. The Polo brothers were to bring the letter to its recipient. The Yuan Emperor also sent an ambassador to Rome, who however abandoned his mission halfway back to Europe, leaving the Polo brothers alone. On their way back to Italy, they passed through Jerusalem, at the time controlled by the Crusaders, to fetch some oil from the lamp. In 1271, the newly elected Pope Gregory X received the letter brought by the Polos, and sent two friars and several gifts back to Kublai. Niccolo and Maffeo Polo, entrusted with the mission, were this time accompanied by the 17-year-old son and nephew, a young man named Marco Polo. The two friars turned away during the journey due to fear, and the Polos arrived at Beijing in 1274. Marco deeply impressed Kublai Khan, who took him in his service. They spent another 17 years in China before heading back to Venice. The Pope Nicholas IV commissioned in 1289 John of Montecorvino to preach Christianity in the East. He reached Beijing in 1294 and rapidly expanded the Western religion by translating the New Testament and other texts into Chinese, as well as building churches. Clashes between Catholicism and the Nestorian Church started to rise, as both churches had a different approach to Christianity. Franciscans from Europe, however, continuously arrived in China to reinforce John's work. Nestorianism declined rapidly, replaced by Catholicism. In less than five years, John converted more than 6,000 people. In 1308, he was consecrated Archbishop of Beijing, the first of many. The thriving of the religion would however come to an end. The outburst of the Black Death in Europe stopped Franciscans from leaving to join missions in China. Furthermore, a revolution was about to take place as the Mongol Yuan Dynasty started to crumble. Zhu Yuanzhang, a Han ethnic Chinese peasant, 
rose in ranks after joining the Red Turban Rebellion. In 1368, he captured Beijing, ending the Yuan Dynasty. He was crowned as the Hongwu Emperor, first of the Ming Dynasty. The Ming was profoundly anti-foreign. While it promoted Buddhism and folk religion, Christianity, both Nestorian and Catholic, was declared illegal. By 1369, all Christians were expelled from China. The second era of Christianity in China had ended. Although the Nestorian Church would never again appear in those lands, a Catholic Church, and more generally Europe, had not yet said its last words. For 200 years, the Ming Dynasty thrived in a Han ethnic Chinese-centered society. The Forbidden City was built. Great naval expeditions were conducted. The Great Wall was consolidated. Meanwhile, a new Europe was born from its medieval form, spreading its borders, trade, and religion. In 1511, the Portuguese Empire, locally under the command of the famous navigator Afonso de Albuquerque, colonized Malacca, a tributary state to the Ming court, finalizing the Portuguese monopoly on the spice trade. In early 1513, Albuquerque sent men on a mission to establish contact and open trade with China. They arrived in Guangdong Province and rapidly acquired a bad reputation among the locals, as they were rumored to be cannibals and child kidnappers. That same year, the King of Portugal ordered his men to establish official diplomatic relations with China. Upon hearing this in 1520, the Zhengde Emperor of the Ming Dynasty approved, and a small embassy was implemented between the two empires. The Ming Emperor, however, died the year after, leaving no heir. Yang Tinghe, Grand Secretary of the Ming Dynasty, therefore became the de facto leader for 37 days until a successor was found. Yang Tinghe held an isolationist policy. And refused trade with Portugal and expelled their embassy. Many Portuguese sailors and officials were imprisoned. Many others executed and tortured. Nonetheless, both Chinese and Portuguese sailors were eager to trade with each other. In 1540, several missionaries founded the Society of Jesus, focused on the evangelization of the peoples of conquered territory. Saint Francis Xavier, one of the founders. Opened the Jesuit College in Portuguese India in 1542. Four years later, two Chinese boys would enroll in the college. After a trip to Japan in 1549, where Francis Xavier introduced Christianity for the very first time, he came back to India. Accompanied by one of the two Chinese boys, baptized Antonio, the Jesuit decided to start evangelizing in China, being the first to do so. He was, however, unable to start his work, dying on Shangtron Island, a Portuguese trade base on the coast of Guangdong Province, in 1552. In the 1550s, the Portuguese trade ships successfully chased away piracy from the area. In gratitude, local authorities offered the sailors to stay in Macau. In 1557, the Portuguese established a permanent settlement in the town, which would actually stay Portuguese until 1999. Jesuits started investing in Macau. Alessandro Valignano, the local Jesuit administrator, arrived in 1578. He called for other missionaries in India to join Macao. Michele Ruggieri arrived the year after, followed in 1582 by Matteo Ricci. The Jesuits started to learn the Chinese language and wrote a basic dictionary. 
Ricci and Ruggieri, both Italian, cooperated and traveled together to the biggest cities of Guangdong province in an attempt to establish another mission, this time on the continent. They were invited to stay in Jiaoqing between 1583 and 1589, where they drew maps and compiled the first ever complete dictionary between Chinese and the European language, in this case Portuguese. Ruggieri studied Taoism and Buddhism to address the common folk, while Ricci studied Confucianism to address the educated class. Ruggieri returned to Europe in 1588, asking the Pope to establish diplomatic relations with the Ming Empire. He was however denied and died shortly after. Expelled by the new governor of Jiaoqing in 1589, Ricci, who had stayed behind, relocated elsewhere and began to travel through China. Meanwhile, Alessandro Valignano, founded in 1584, St. Paul's College in Macau, focused on the study of Chinese and Eastern languages in general. Three years later, he appointed Matteo Ricci as major superior of the mission in China. Under this title, Ricci reached Beijing for the first time in 1598. Due to the ongoing Injin War, where Japan had invaded Korea and China sent help to the Joseon dynasty, any foreigner was unwelcomed as they could be a spy. Ricci had to return south. In Nanjing in the year 1600, the Jesuit missionary met Xu Guangqi, an aspiring scholar. They collaborated to translate classic Western texts to Chinese and Confucian classics to Latin. The year after, Ricci was invited to the court of the Wanli Emperor, being the very first Westerner to enter the Forbidden City. He would build a chapel in Beijing in 1605 that would become the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, oldest Catholic church still standing in Beijing. Now well established in the capital city, under imperial patronage, enjoyed by Diego de Pantora, another Jesuit, he started converting many people. Due to his efforts, many wealthy people and officials, such as Li Yingshi, military officer, veteran of the Imjin War, and mathematician, became Catholic. Three years later, Ricci was approached by a Chinese Jewish scholar from Kaifeng and was surprised to discover there was a Chinese Jewish community. I explained these events and their consequences in my video on Judaism in China, links in the description below. Xu Guangqi, Matteo's convert from Nanjing, had been baptized in 1603 and started encouraging evangelization locally. His family and descendants would be Catholics too. By 1605, Ricci claimed he had converted about 1,000 people. The Jesuit priest, after a life dedicated to religion, died five years later in 1610, after many conversions. He was supposed to be buried in Macau, like all foreigners, as was dictated by the code of the Ming Dynasty. His colleague Diego de Pantora, however, made a plea to the court and obtained from the Wanli Emperor that Matteo Ricci would be allowed to rest in Beijing in a Buddhist temple. His grave can still be visited today. From Europe and through Macau, more and more missionaries arrived in China. The Nestorian stele was rediscovered in 1625 by workmen digging in the area. Missionaries took great interest in it as soon as they heard of it. Trouble was however brewing for the Ming dynasty. In 1618, Nora Hachi, a man who had unified the scattered Jurchen tribes, launched a rebellion against the Ming dynasty, judging tyrannical the way the Ming administration treated the Jurchen. His army rapidly conquered land, supported by some Ming defectors. A Chinese Catholic convert and protégé of Xu Guangqi, Sun Yuanhua, advocated repelling the Qing by using Western mathematics and military science. He was governor of Penglai and trained his troops to use Portuguese cannons. They however mutinied in 1632 and joined the Jurchen rebels. Sun was subsequently court-martialed and executed.
the Jiuqian, renamed Manchu, successfully overthrew the Ming Dynasty in 1644, forcing its remnants to withdraw to the south. Thus, the Qing Dynasty was established. The Ming declined rapidly after that. Its last emperor, Yongli, was converted to Christianity by Michal Boim, a Polish Jesuit. Yongli's mother, Empress Dowager Helena Wang, even wrote a letter to the Pope in Rome, asking for help against the Qing Dynasty. The Pope answered by promising they would pray for them. In the 1650s, the Emperor sent one of the first Chinese persons to Europe, Andreas Zheng, alongside the Polish missionary. In Rome, they worked together on translating the Nestorian Stele. Xianfo Zong, a Catholic convert from Nanjing, later went to Europe in the 1680s, visiting Flanders, Italy, France, and even England, meeting the monarchs and heads of state each time. He later officially became a Jesuit priest in Portugal. At the same time, the Jesuits in China introduced Western science to the empire. Johann Adam Charles von Bell, a German priest, worked with Xu Guanqi on a reformed and more accurate calendar. He later became a trusted advisor of the Qing Emperor Shunzhi, allowing him to build many churches, which indirectly led to the conversion of over 500,000 people to Christianity. Bell was joined by the Flemish Jesuit Ferdinand Verbist, also proficient in astronomy, and they worked in the Beijing Ancient Observatory alongside many other astronomers. The death of Emperor Shunzhi in 1661 led to a change in the way the country was governed. Since his son was only seven, a regency was put in place that disapproved of the Jesuits. The Muslim Chinese astronomers used the occasion to challenge the Jesuits, accusing them of plotting against the empire. In 1664, Bell and Verbist were subsequently imprisoned and prepared for execution. Coincidentally, a series of meteorological events, such as an earthquake and meteor, destroyed part of the prison. The fire also broke out in the imperial palace, where the Jesuits had been condemned. Seeing this as an omen, the authorities released the prisoners, and instead of executing them all, some were simply exiled. Bell died due to the poor conditions he had endured while in prison, but Ferdinand Verbist was able to restore Western reputation. In 1669, he was put to the test against the main figure that had challenged the priests. They had to predict future astronomical events. Using the most recent mathematical discoveries, the beast was able to successfully do so. Thus, the new Kangxi emperor allowed the exiled Jesuits to return, and instead exiled the Muslim astronomer. The beast was also appointed head of the observatory, and became close friends with the Kangxi emperor, who regularly asked him to teach him music and philosophy. Verbist is also credited with having invented the first steam-propelled vehicle as an amusement for the emperor around 1672. Other religious orders were introduced to China through Macau during the century, such as Dominicans and Franciscans. The papacy favoured these rather than the Jesuits, who gradually declined. A controversy appeared in the Catholic Church. While Jesuits converted officials and the Kangxi emperor himself argued that Confucian traditions were not incompatible with Christianity. The Dominicans argued these pagan rituals were heretic and reported to the Pope. In 1704, Pope Clement XI sent his legate Charles Thomas Maillard de Tournon to excommunicate any Christian practicing Chinese rituals. The Emperor first greeted him, but upon discovering his purpose, he was infuriated and ordered him to be imprisoned in Macau, where he died in 1707. The Jesuits, although disagreeing with the Holy See, still held allegiance to the Pope and had to obey the decrees, which led to a crumble of the missionaries. By 1721, practically all Catholic missions had been cancelled, removed or collapsed. Their work was however not in vain, 
as a significant proportion of civilians were now Catholics. Resentment towards Christianity started to grow in the court. The Kangxi Emperor started to distrust the Jesuits. After his death in 1722, his son Yongzheng officially banned Christianity in 1724. All priests had to leave. The churches were converted to public offices. Another era of Christianity in China had come to an end. But it would not be the last. Seventeen ninety eight. Christianity in the Great Qing Empire is practiced in discretion by some one hundred thirty five thousand Chinese Catholics, and proselytizing is banned. A select few Catholic missionaries remain in the court, working in domains such as astronomy. Meanwhile, in London, a young Scottish man, recently converted to Protestantism, visits the British Museum. He comes across a manuscript of the New Testament, written in Chinese, by Jesuit missionaries of the Age of Exploration. After suggesting to many churches and bishops to start sending translated holy scriptures to China, and receiving mostly negative replies, the young Robert Morrison makes his decision. He will become a missionary and convert to Protestantism the, in his own words, 350 million souls in China who have not the means of knowing Jesus Christ as a saviour. A new period for Christianity in China has dawned. 1707. The missionary Robert Morrison arrived in Macau in 1807, a city built by the Portuguese Empire on land leased by the Chinese Empire, but he soon realised his task would be of great difficulty. As resentment towards Westerners had grown in the last decades, only traders were allowed to access the mainland, besides Macau. Chinese locals were also forbidden, under penalty of death, from teaching their language to foreigners, as it was considered treason. Three days after arriving, the Portuguese authorities expelled him from Macau, as his Protestant views clashed with the Catholic cities. Morrison had to relocate to Canton, the only port open for trade with foreigners in the Qing Empire. During the following weeks, in order to be able to communicate efficiently with the Chinese, he clandestinely studied both Cantonese and Mandarin, finding a native teacher. It is reported that his teacher carried poison with him at all times, to avoid being tortured if he was caught. In 1809, he was appointed as a translator for the British East India Trading Company, which allowed him to earn a decent wage. By 1813, he was joined by a second Protestant missionary, William Milne. They worked together on translating texts and printing books and pamphlets, employing locals to assist them with the tasks. The year after, Morrison finally converted the first Chinese person to Protestantism, a local who worked for him as a printer for his texts, named Ta Gao. The Protestant branch of Christianity was finally spreading in the Qing Empire. In 1816, Milne converted his own local teacher, who was to be a talented Christian Chinese author, Liang Fa, as Morrison had to temporarily return to England, he entrusted Liang Fa to carry on his translation works on his behalf and incited him to start converting people himself. Gradually, a tiny Protestant community began to grow in Canton. Morrison and his colleagues, after over ten years of intense work, finally translated the whole Bible into Chinese. Contrarily to previous Catholic missionaries, who had also translated some of the Bible, he tried to make his work as accessible as possible to everyone, natives and foreign missionaries alike. The Scottish missionary was able to convert a final person before his death, one Chu Ya'an. 
He was buried in 1834 in the old Protestant cemetery of Macau that had been established several years before in 1821 by the British East India Trading Company. His grave can still be visited today. About a dozen Protestant Chinese people now lived in Canton. In parallel, resentment towards Westerners and Christianity grew even stronger in the Chinese people. The Daoguang Emperor modified the previous anti-count law established by the Jiaqing Emperor that sentenced to death the spreading of Christianity to ethnic Han and Manchu people. Openly practicing Christians were furthermore sold as slaves to Muslim leader in the Uyghur Xinjiang province. It is reported that the Daoguang Emperor heard of the Protestant activities in Canton and demanded who were the people he considered as treacherous natives who had supplied the Chinese locals with Christian books. Some Chinese Protestants were arrested and executed. In spite of all this, one last missionary was nonetheless allowed to stay in Beijing, the great capital city of the Qing Empire, the Portuguese Gaetano Pires Pereira. As he was realizing the Portuguese and other Catholic nations would no longer invest much in Christianity in the Chinese mainland, and since the Protestant community was not yet big enough, he asked the Russian Orthodox Church to take over the possessions of the church in China before his death in 1838. Orthodoxy had been introduced in the first half of the 18th century in China, and a small mission was opened in Beijing. It however served more of a translation and diplomatic center between China and the Russian Empire, with only a few dozen converts. It was therefore spared from persecution. Due to the restrictions on trade and attempts by the Qing authorities to stop opium from entering China by any means, the British launched the first opium war that led to a crushing defeat for China, but that is a subject for another video. The Qing Empire was forced into signing the Treaty of Nanking in 1842 that forced the opening of many ports and ceded Hong Kong to the British. These events allowed Western missionaries to considerably increase their activities throughout the coastal cities that had been opened, Canton, Shanghai, Fuzhou, Xiamen and Ningbo. Under the terms of the treaty, foreign citizens came under the authority of their own consular, as opposed to Chinese jurisdiction. Christianity would no longer be legally outlawed. The five coastal cities previously mentioned were to be open for trade and residence for all foreigners, as well as the right to build churches, schools, missionary residences, etc. in these cities. All former church buildings were to be returned to the Christians, regardless of their present status. Catholicism was now publicly reaffirmed, and Protestant evangelists could now openly preach to urban populations. Keep in mind, however, that Christianity and preaching beyond the five cities was still banned. Hong Xiaochuan, a man who had failed at the imperial examinations four consecutive times, started studying Protestant pamphlets distributed by the missionaries, and the text of Liang Fa, the second Chinese Protestant in history. He eventually started his own Christian sect, writing his own version of the Bible, known as the Taiping Bible, or Bible of the Great Peace. His sect grew into a movement, then an insurrection, and finally a full-scale rebellion against the Qing court in 1850. I explain these events in my videos about the Taiping Rebellion, links in the description. Meanwhile, Protestant missionaries kept flocking to China. James Hudson Taylor, a young British Protestant who had studied medicine, came to Shanghai in 1854, where the British had established a concession. Initially struggling to accomplish his task, being nicknamed the Black Devil due to his coat, he later managed to convert a few people. The Taiping Rebellion led to even more suspicions towards Christians, 
One French Catholic missionary named Auguste Chapdelaine joined the Catholic mission of Canton in 1852. He however decided to pursue his work further into the mainland and started preaching in Guizhou province, then Guangxi province, breaking the law. Ten days after arriving to a village, where the local Catholic community counted about 300 members, he was arrested and jailed for over two weeks. Regularly threatened, he did not stop his work and was arrested again in 1856. This time he was accused of stirring up unrest and since he refused to pay a bribe to be released, he was tortured and executed. This event greatly tainted the Sino-French relations. Coincidentally with the Taiping Rebellion, the Second Opium War broke out between the Qing Empire and the British Empire that same year. The French Empire later joined the war alongside the British, prompted by complaints and demands for reparations for the death of the missionary Auguste Chapdelaine. Once again, the overrun and ill-equipped Chinese army was no match for the modernized European forces, and yet another unequal treaty was imposed on China. Missionaries were now allowed to work, own properties and travel throughout China beyond the five coastal cities. The Catholic Church did not make major efforts to evangelize in China, having already a significant presence, with quite a few Catholic missionaries working. On the other hand, Protestant missions from America, Britain and several European countries started to be dispatched in large numbers to the Qing Empire. It is estimated that by 1864, a couple hundred Protestant missionaries worked to convert the Chinese people. Many churches, clinics and hospitals were opened in the country, largely introducing modern medical practices into the Chinese Empire. American physician and missionary Peter Parker, who arrived in Canton in 1834, founded the following year the Ophthalmic Hospital, later to become the Guangzhou Boji Yiyuan, or Canton Hospital. This was the very first Western hospital opened in China, and it treated thousands of patients. It still exists today. The missionary Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission in 1866, that would become the largest Christian mission in the history of China. Many diverse missions and groups sprouted throughout the country. Several native converts also gradually obtained autonomy and started their own movements, more independent from the missionaries. Inevitably, Christianity was thriving in the Qing Empire, still mainly Catholic, then Protestant, and finally a small Orthodox community. Chinese conservatives and nationalists however started growing more and more uneasy at the Christian influence and foreign presence in general. The elites, educated in classical Chinese values, realized that they lost a lot of influence to the Christians who engaged in charity, providing food and shelter to poor people. Many common people also felt that Christianity tainted the pure Chinese culture. During the second half of the 19th century, anti-Christian pamphlets started to circulate. In 1865, a French missionary was beaten to death in Youyang. The local viceroy was forced to pay 80,000 taels of silver in reparations to the French, who sent troops to intimidate. One local accused of the beating was executed. In 1868, in the town of Yangzhou, riots broke out after posters in the city accused the foreigners of kidnapping and killing babies to make medicine. Thousands of locals stormed the China Inland Mission and injured many missionaries, who had to flee. The British then intervened by sending 70 Royal Marines. Zhang Guofan, the local viceroy and a significant statesman and general, had to make an official apology. Zhou Han, a conservative scholar, made it his oath to fight what he perceived as a Christian invasion. His father had actually died while fighting the Taiping rebels in 1860, 
and he later fought in the Chinese army himself, obtaining minor titles. Christianity had thrived in his native Hunan province while he served in the army, and when he returned he started writing books and creating prints, encouraging the people to return to traditional Chinese virtues and directly denouncing the Christians. His tracts, in a direct response to the Christian ones, held titles such as Death to the Devil's Religion, Death Blow to Corrupt Doctrines, or Complete Set of Images to Ward Off Heterodoxy. Locally, a true propaganda war between the Christian and anti-Christian pamphlets began. In 1891, in what would be known as the Yangtze Riots, big crowds in several cities along the Yangtze River harassed and attacked Christians. Hundreds died, including two British citizens. The British consul then pressured the Chinese local authorities to track down Zhou Han, who was seen as a responsible for the violence, since he printed most of the pamphlets. They however realized the man was perceived as a hero by many Chinese locals, and were therefore reluctant to prosecute him. Zhou Han was eventually stripped of his rank and sent back to his native town, and later jailed. While Christianity was growing stronger and stronger in the Qing Empire, as was Western influence in general, more and more anti-Christian and anti-foreign rights erupted, which often led to the local authorities having to pay reparations to the Western powers. A split in the imperial court was born between conservatives and reformists, who understood the only way for China to get its might back was to modernize and westernize, as had done the Empire of Japan. In 1895, the prefect of Taozhou recruited the Big Sword Society, one of many secret societies in China, to fight off local bandits. The bandits however converted to Christianity and sought refuge from missionaries. The Big Sword Societies then attacked and burned down churches. In 1897, people believed to be members of the society assassinated two German Catholic missionaries. The German Empire then used this event as a pretext to receive land and silver from the authorities and the right to build three more churches. Tensions were growing on all sides. The conservatives of the court, the reformists who urged for radical changes in the empire, the western powers who vied for more privileges, and the Christians and anti-Christians. Signs of an imminent conflict were starting to show. At the turning point of the 19th century, Christianity in China had never been stronger. The China Inland Mission counted alone more than 500 missionaries. There were additional thousands of Protestant missionaries in the country. The number of Chinese Protestants is estimated at somewhere between 50 to 100,000. The Catholic community counted about 600 to 700,000 members. The Orthodox, a few thousand. In the countryside, however, nationalist Chinese infuriated by the spread of this foreign cult and the weakness of the authorities started gathering in groups with a common motto, overthrow the Qing, exterminate the foreigners. It was time for yet another rebellion. Time for yet another rebellion. <laughs> yeah. That's from a YouTube channel called History of China. I spliced together three of his videos, a three-part series. Um, um, to make that a little bit shorter, <laughs> I loved it. Hopefully you liked it. Or you skipped by it. Either way. Um, appears though he didn't do a part four. Um, it hasn't been released in like a couple years. This is what, about two or three years old. So I'm going to assume he gave up on doing it. So um, we're going to kind of pick up where he left off right now. As he kind of mentioned, the Taiping Rebellion was led by an eccentric Chinese Christian leader who preached his own localized version of the faith and accompanied by Islamist rebellions across the country, 
only solidified the fear, the growing fear of foreign religion in the minds of the Chinese elite. China, considered to be a nation with a long history of humanism, secularism, and worldly thought since the time of Confucius, who stressed being in the world, you know, the contradictory of uh, Jesus' teachings, to um, simply be in the world, not of the world. Hu Xi stated in the 1920s that China is a country without religion and the Chinese are a people who are not bound by religious superstitions. In the 19th century, again as he kind of mentioned, after China's defeat in the First Opium War and in the successive wars that followed, the country succumbed to increasing domination by foreign imperialist powers. The boxers considered Christian missionaries to be promoting foreign influence in China and held, held deep anti-Christian views. Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant missionaries and church members were widely massacred as a result over the years, as he was kind of mentioning. Where he left off, though, in the 1920s, so now we're getting to the 20th century, in the 1920s, the anti-Christian movement was an intellectual and political movement in Republican China, often backed by the revolutionary-minded Communist Party, seeking to gain power and influence at that time as well. Many began attacking all religions, including Confucianism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity in an attempt to eliminate resistance to and hesitancy of the state. During the Cultural Revolution and the full takeover of China by the communists, a radical policy of anti-religion and anti-tradition was instituted. Oppressive laws were written and enforced cracking down on religions and what was deemed superstitions. In the ensuing decade, the five major religions in China were severely suppressed. Many religious organizations were disbanded, property was confiscated, damaged, or destroyed entirely. Monks and nuns were sent home or even killed during violent struggle sessions. Since the reforms of 1979, the government of China has liberalized religious policies to a degree, and religious populations have experienced some growth. Nevertheless, the irreligious remain the majority among all age groups in China. Local governments may even support certain local religious institutions and festivals in a bid to promote tourism or publish propaganda showing tolerance of opinions and beliefs to foreigners, to the outsiders. However, atheism, characterization of religions as superstition, and promotion of scientific materialism remain core tenets of the ruling Communist Party, which is strategic. Statistics are not always reliable in China. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, we, all, we all know they like to play jokes, you know. <laughs> but also just the size of it, the range of it, how much um, rural there is to it um, and just the, yeah, the sheer size of the population and the geography but there may be as many as 100 million believers more than the 90 million members of the Chinese Communist Party itself some optimistic estimates see as many as 250 million Christians in China by 2030 and up to 400 million by 2060 which would outnumber the amount of Christians in America and even outnumber the entirety of the U.S. population by 2060. 
All that makes the faith, however disunified and diverse that Christians there and everywhere can be, inherently threatening to the CCP and its grip on power over the nation. Chinese leadership has studied the fall of the Soviet bloc intensely and are well aware of the role that Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant faiths contributed to the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. They are seeking to avoid that same result. Christians and those who have genuine faith in the King of Kings remain the greatest source of resistance to authoritarian rule, both in China and everywhere. The persecution of Christians in China today, whatever their specific denomination, is at its highest point since the Cultural Revolution. As the Chinese Communist Party celebrates its 100-year anniversary, Christianity remains the greatest challenge and its most feared obstacle to power. China's constitution, as of now, guarantees religious freedom, but since President Xi Jinping took office, his government has tightened restrictions on churches it cannot personally control. Religion is seen as a challenge to the Communist Party's power, especially now that Christians outnumber the party's 82 million members, and Christianity seems to be quickly and rapidly expanding beyond just a simple majority. The Chinese Communist Party officially announced regulations in 2018 to preserve Chinese culture and party authority against ideological threats. Something that, as we have seen by now, is something the nation has a long history of. When the elites and the ruling class in China feel like Christianity is beginning to rise and take influence, then revolts, persecution, and even outright massacres seem to take place. It seems to be a commonly repeated pattern. While the Communist Party itself is officially atheist, it publicly allows believers to attend state-sanctioned places of worship, run and run by approved priests. But most of the hundred million or so Christians choose instead to worship together in house churches to avoid state interference and subversion. Religious controls have been part of communist practice since the foundation of the People's Republic of China. Most Christian churches are are pressured into patriotic quote-unquote patriotic public stances and some denominations or individual churches that are unrecognized by the communist party can be allowed to operate cautiously on their own while most of them must conduct their services and their worship underground in secret the state regularly conducts raids and arrests on church leaders and influential preachers or christian influencers in pop culture They are charged with crimes for simply preaching the gospel, preaching it publicly, or conducting fellowship events outside of state-sanctioned locations or without state authorities present. Christians and church leaders are often arrested by the Communist Party and charged with inciting subversion of state power, often facing heavy fines and even imprisonment of up to 15 years for for simply sharing. God's word. Between 5,000 and 10,000 Christian churchgoers have been arrested in the last three years alone. Some prominent Protestant clergy have been given long prison sentences, and around two-thirds of China's Protestants have resorted to underground churches in an attempt to avoid police harassment. 
Government officials have been asked to compile the names and details of worshipers, feeding into discrimination in employment, especially in official posts. All children under age 18 have been strictly prohibited from attending any kind of religious education. Theoretically already the case, but not strongly enforced beforehand. Religious leaders are expected to promote and give authority to the CCP and Chinese President Xi Jinping personally. In some churches, the icons of Jesus have been replaced with President Winnie the Pooh, either due to outright force or just because they were strongly encouraged to do so to take some heat off of the flock. The assault on Christian practice in China is, of course, neither new, neither new nor unique. The Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, has always imposed limits on believers, and Chinese imperial states' relationship with religions were always contentious or even outright hostile. The nation's ruling class has moved to seize control of the Catholic Church in China, while restricting Protestant worship to the Communist Party-approved and controlled, quote, patriotic churches. These mostly use a version, a version of the Bible rewritten by the ruling political class to conform with state dogma. So many Christians who seek to genuinely know, obey, serve, follow, and worship their true God have been forced underground. Local, small gatherings and houses, on street corners, on farms, at restaurants, inside of caves, and during shopping trips and markets have become church and worship events. One anonymous underground church member told the BBC that the idea of the state-run churches was hilarious, adding that they, quote, don't spread genuine gospel, but spread the thoughts of loving the party, loving the country. Many Christians that have found themselves on government lists or with special or with social restrictions on their names or who have even been charged with crimes or imprisoned have navigated the environment by publicly worshiping at the state approved or managed churches on some days of the week and then either attending or hosting their own underground church meetings at other times of the week. The fire they have for finding and knowing Christ is not being stopped by the attempts made in recent years by the Chinese Communist Party. It is a constant and continuous game of cat and mouse, where the unofficial church doors are being sealed, Bibles and religious icons confiscated, and names and addresses being taken down. But still, many millions of Christians choose to take the risk in worshiping and following Christ despite the various attempts made to stop them from doing so. And their numbers keep on growing. More and more lost souls are being brought into the light at these underground churches and through the sharing and spreading of the gospel. There is truly power in the mighty name of Jesus, and the salvation of the gospel is thirsted after by all sinners with seeking hearts. The Chinese Christians are waking up and on fire for the Lord, for their creator. While we here in America are lukewarm and sleeping, afraid and comfortable, content and spiritually broken.
So we're going to watch a video, a couple videos, a couple clips here on this first Monday night stream. So this is a clip about Chinese underground churches. in the world are seeing the explosion of God's power like the underground church in China is experiencing. And in the last 60 years, China's communist government has done its best to wipe Christianity off the map. What you are about to see is some of the rarest footage on the planet. In this church, the people wake up at 4.30 to come together for two hours to pray and worship. They do this every day. This church meets in the only place they are safe, a cave. This church meets on a farm, far away from prying eyes. Here's an example of an underground church outreach. The people sitting are Christians. The people who are standing are not. This particular preacher was once crippled, but was healed when someone prayed for her. She now preaches the good news of Jesus to anyone who will listen. In this particular meeting, over 1,000 people became Christians. Here Christians cast out demons from an 18-year-old girl. She's now a preacher. In Shanghai alone, there are over 3,000 house churches, just like this one. One thing Dennis pointed out to me was that most of the underground churches in China are actually led by young people. These kids have all come out of the communist system, and they want nothing to do with it. They only want to spread the love of Jesus to everybody they meet. This is a music school. Well, that's the cover anyway. It's really a training school for students who want to be pastors. The government thinks they're simply learning to play instruments. One thing I quickly realized about the Chinese church is that it's a lot different from the American one. For one thing, they think a four-hour sermon is short. In this church service, it's 120 degrees inside the building. The people meet for 12 hours straight. Dennis told me one story about a time he went to a very remote village in China to preach. He was led into a large room where the people were packed so closely together that he had his back to the wall and could reach out and touch the row in front of him. Everyone stood. There was no room to sit. He asked how long he should preach for, and they told him from 8.30 to 7 at night. Then they asked him, if it wasn't too much trouble, could you come back tomorrow and preach from 8.30 to 7 again? And then, very sheepishly, they asked again, if you'd be so kind, could you come back the day after that and preach from 8.30 to 7? He asked how often he should take breaks, and they told him not to stop. 
The people will wait. Then he asked them what he should preach on. Everything, they replied, from Genesis to Revelation. And then it dawned on him, these people had no Bibles. After the death of Mao Zedong, the Chinese people, cheated by a false god, began to search for the true god. For the first time in their lives, people from the lowest levels of society came face to face with God's unconditional love, with Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and with the knowledge that in God's temple they had value and dignity. How could they not rejoice, like everyone who has received the most precious gift in the world? church. I felt the atmosphere there was really good. I found true meaning in life. I found a peace that I never felt before. Peace in the Lord. So I can say without reservation, I will follow God for the rest of my life. After the service, my soul felt especially sweet and joyful. Lord, how wonderful it will be if we can meet like this every day. I lay away for three nights, overwhelmed with joy. I thought, Lord, what have I received? Why am I so filled with joy? I have no money. I have no family. I have nothing. And you know, I was absolutely sure that this joy came from heaven. Awesome. <laughs> so awesome, right? Um, get my music going again. The Chinese are getting it. <laughs> so getting it. We're going to play another clip here. It's awesome. The fire of God is happening in the East. The fire for God. Burning in the hearts of lost souls are happening right now in the Far East. While the West is asleep and crumbling. While we suicide our culture and our nations, the Chinese are waking up and catching fire righteous fire inside of millions and millions and millions of hearts that one of the most powerful governments and militaries in recorded human history cannot stop or slow down no matter how hard they try the lord is at work and big things are on the horizon <laughs> china is crushing and satan must be shaken in his stupid little boots 
So let's watch another clip here about uh, Bibles. This is the most dangerous book in the world. You know, kings and dictators spend a lot of time and have spent a lot of time burning it, banning it, basically just trying to hide it from people. In university, they teach that it's a dusty old book full of mythology and stories. But what does God say? Well, God says, first of all, that this book is alive. You know, think about it. It exposes all of Satan's schemes and everything he's doing. Uh, God says that this thing is like a sword. It cuts through flesh and goes right into the spirit of man. Everywhere it goes, it smuggles life to the dead and dying. It brings Jesus. Basically, it is spiritual fertilizer. Everywhere this thing goes, life springs up. Now look at this video of Chinese seminary students. They're, these guys are receiving their first Bible. And you know, the Bible was banned for decades in China, but what do you see? They know the value of this book. They know it brings life. And that's why we fight those who are trying to strangle the church around the world by banning or burning or blocking the Bible. That simple sentence defines our actions. So think of it this way, look, if a government says Christian kids can't have the Bible, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna send in Christian kid Bibles and teaching materials. If they say adults can't have the Bible, then we'll smuggle them in. We'll do either physical or digital Bibles. If a persecuted believer can't read, we're gonna send in audio Bibles. And in the end, look, if a government destroys one Bible, then we're gonna send in 10. You know, we have an immediate need for $117,000. And first off, we want to get thousands of Bibles into Egypt for Christian kids. And then we also want to send thousands of Bibles into Vietnam. And probably the thing I'm most excited about is we want to double the broadcast or radio broadcast of the gospel into North Korea. Governments and religions are working around the clock to keep this book from getting into the hands of the dead and dying. And I think that's wrong, and I think you probably do too. So I want to ask you, would you join with us? Let's get the Word of God into the hands of the dead and dying and into the hands of persecuted believers so that they can grow and tell those around them that there's life and there's hope, and it's found in Jesus. So yeah, I don't really know anything about that organization specifically. <laughs> this isn't some endorsement of them. So then support them at your own risk. But if they are up to good, support them. Look into them for yourself before sending them, you know, money. And <laughs> you know, it, it might appear genuine. It seems like an awesome cause, but um, yeah, just do your own research. But support them if they are legit. Regardless, regardless of that group, the message here is clear and profound. God's word is powerful, so powerful, clearly. It is the light in this dark world and all those who are not blinded by their sins and all those who are not spiritually broken can see clearly when they come in contact with the word. 
the power, the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of it. It happened to me. <laughs> it happened to me, a former non-believer who thought that the Bible was a joke, that all religions were used by rich people to control poor people. I thought God was a fairy tale and that this life in this world was all that there is. And then I began reading the New Testament for the first time. And it was just over, <laughs> just over. I couldn't stop reading it. I couldn't stop knowing it. I couldn't stop pursuing God in all his right ways as soon as I looked upon the word. And I knew it had just been written on my heart from the beginning, from before my beginning. It was written on my heart. God knew me when he knit me in the womb and that the truth was truly inside of me all along. And that our true father in heaven was just waiting for me to overcome my fallen state and return to him spiritually all along. Waiting to repent of all my sins and all my wrongdoings, to confess my faith in him and in his son, to forgive those around me who have done me harm or have done wrong in the world, and just walk into a path of righteousness in and with God and a life dedicated to just bringing him all the glory. It all started when my eyes laid upon the word. The truth was revealed inside of my heart. My eyes became fixated on eternity and that will never stop. That will never stop. I was blinded by my sins and living in darkness, but encountering the light through his word was all I needed and what everyone needs to overcome, to be born again and enter into the eternal kingdom that we all truly belong in, our real home. Those who encounter Christ become profoundly different. Those who cannot see or refuse to entirely are left to suffer and die in this world. Those who lay their eyes on the Bible and who place their hearts, souls, and minds into the hands of their Creator are saved from the punishment of their sins and welcomed into the eternal kingdom. That is truly some good news that is worthy of real rejoicing. And the Chinese are getting it. <laughs> they are finding God, they are following him, worshiping him, and they are crushing right now. But you won't really hear about it on your screens or in the media or much at all online or on social media, but the Chinese are getting it and they are crushing. And to Green Apostle in the chat, who's asking me what the Bible, what the gospel is, and sent me an Instagram DM already, um, and apparently has already watched my video of my, of my testimony called Transformation on my pages. Um, he asked, let me see here. Why should I believe the gospels? You should believe the gospels because of the truth of your reality. <laughs> it's the truth of your creator. It's the truth of who you are, what your purpose is, what your meaning is what you are to do, and the destiny that lays before you when you just believe. Those who encounter Christ become profoundly different. And that is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ has come to touch us, to be with us, to live in us and through us, to provide us with the truth that we need. And I say it all the time, my mentor tells it very simply, the gospel is salvation for sinners. You are a sinner, you were born into a fallen state, and you lived a sinful life because you didn't know better. It wasn't your fault, but it happened. And when you're finally ready to overcome all of the suffering that comes with that, <laughs> you know, you might be enjoying some temporary pleasures and some temporary relaxation and 
what have you, material rewards, social rewards, um, earthly benefits in your here and now in your life. But you're gonna suffer if you aren't already, if you aren't aware of it already because of your fallen state, because of your sinful nature. And when you're ready to truly overcome that, God is waiting there for you to provide you with the salvation you need when you put your place, when you put your faith into God, when, you, when your heart truly is placed into the hands of God, um, you will be saved. Salvation will be afforded to you by the grace of God, your creator, your true creator, and the one who has a kingdom waiting for you after this life, for your soul inside of your physical body to return to one day. So I'll read it again, because that's awesome. Those who encounter Christ become profoundly different. Those who cannot see or refuse to see entirely are left to suffer and die in this world. Those who lay their eyes on the Bible and who place their hearts, souls, and minds into the hands of their Creator are saved from the punishment of their sins and welcomed into the eternal kingdom. And that is the good news that is the gospel. And then he asks after, he says, I watched the video, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you're learning a lot right now and getting inspired. <laughs> if you have any more questions, hit me up. But he also asks, can you can ask what you think about the age of the earth? And yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think God is the only one who knows the exact year, but I think it's relatively new. It's not billions and billions and trillions of years old or whatever. It's probably like 10,000 years or less, our time. Um, but I don't know. At the end of the day, I don't know. It's not that important to me. I know that the Bible is the truth. It's so clear when you open, when you when you read it. When you're no longer blinded by your sins and your eyes lay upon God's word for the first time, and you start to truly soak it in, you start to see all the lies that exist around you, all the lies of the scientists and the kings and the rulers of this earth, um, all the humans around you, <laughs> all the fallen people and the fallen living in a fallen state around you. You start to see the lies for what they are. So I don't necessarily know exactly what it is, but it's relatively new compared to what <laughs> the sinners will tell you, uh, how old and crazy it is, how crazy big the universe is and how old it is. Christopher Shade, I think it's Shade or Shad, C-S-C-H-A-D-E, Shade, Shade, <laughs> sorry if I'm butchering your name, um, says the kings conspire and God laughs. You are following the heart of God with your laughter. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's why meme wars are good. God laughs. Yes. He says, epic hat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's an actual real rice farmer hat. It's not like a little Halloween costume. It's pretty intense. It's like actually woven pretty well. Can't see it. My camera got real orange when I painted my, uh, when I finally got around to painting my, uh, the thing, the wood thing behind me. So the hue is weird, but this is actually pretty light. It's pretty awesome. Based answer, the gospel is the truth and it's good. Yes, it is. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So we're going to do one more clip here, and then we're going to do one at the very end. It says, pronounce Shada. Shada. I like that. Christopher Shada. Right on. So yeah, one more clip here. And then we're going to end with a clip. But this is one more clip we're going to talk about. I think it's 10 minutes. Maybe less. Let me pause my music. And yeah.
I grew up in a very difficult time in that communists took over China. They um, sent out all the missionaries back to their own country. The country was struggling with poverty, uh, political stability. They tried to, to destroy all their enemies. They closed all the doors of uh, the church in China. They sent all the pastors to prison. And um, the slogan was to destroy all religion so that communists could be the, the, the main dominant thoughts. That was the situation. In uh, summer 1966, the government of China sent out thousands of red guards to all the Christians' home to gather the Bible, hymn notes, um, devotional books, and they gathered them and burned them in the square in one day. In all the city squares throughout China, there was a day of burning and it was the burning of Bible. They came to my home to get the Bible. And it was early in the morning, we realized that our house was surrounded by hundreds of red guards and soldiers and police. And we just wondered why they, they surrounded our home. And we sensed something very strange. Uh, in that morning, there was a brother who was a farmer. He was on his way home. And he felt the inner urge in his heart to come to visit us. And uh, he said, Lord, I did not contact them for a while. I did not tell them I was coming. It's impolite to just come, show up. But when he was on the way home, the inner urge was stronger. So he, he turned around and he came to my home. And just before the red guards came to my home to collect the Bible, he knocked at the door, he came in and asked my parents, what can I do for you? And my father said, take this Bible and go. And he took the Bible and left. And they thought that he was selling things to us. They did not stop him. When you ask me if God is involved, when a guy rides a bicycle up to the door and you happen to feel prompted, to give the guy the Bible, and then a hundred of the Red Guard arrived to take the Bible that's now gone with the guy on the bicycle. Was God involved in that? Every single detail, every single detail. God is absolutely sovereign. There's not one rebellious molecule on the face of this earth or in this universe that is acting against his will. Everything is conformed to his will. He even uses evil. He, he uses everything. This is what, what theologians call providence. Every detail is controlled by God. The prompting in that guy's heart, the showing up with the bicycle, the prompting on the part of the father to give the Bible, the timing, God has his purposes in all those things. And in particular, of course, with his own people for his own ends. This is clearly the providence of God working. They came for the Bible and they came in, they searched the house. They uh, could not find the Bible, so they, they dug into the floor. They um, 
destroyed the windows and the doors, took away all the furniture. They went to the roof. They went everywhere to look for the Bible, and when they could not find it, they began to bring the family outside of the house and tortured the family uh, for three days and three nights, in which we were not allowed to go to sleep. Uh, they beat my dad, my mom, and they beat the children in front of the parents just to force them to deny Christ, and none of us did. They asked my older brother, to deny Christ, and they asked him to make a choice. You want communism or Christianity? And my brother said, Christianity. And he was taken out by a group of red guard, and they beat him. They beat him until blood came out internally. There's a common saying among believers, and it is this. The blood of the martyrs always becomes the seed of the church. I'll give you an illustration of it. The strongest church in Asia, the strongest church in Asia, the one that Daniel comes from, is the most persecuted church. It's the church in China. You go to Japan. Japan had 250 missionary boards at one time ministering in Japan all kinds of Christian institutions, Christian ministries all over, and it is a totally pagan culture. On the other hand, you go to China, and, and you're going to find several hundred million Christians in a country where Christians were massacred. Why is that? Because that's a purifying process. Hypocrites all abandon religion. They're not going to be phony for something that costs them their life. What is the outcome of that? Tremendous expansion of the gospel because of the credibility that that develops. And a Christian sister was sympathetic, and she gave my mom $5 and said, take your son to the hospital and see what, what the doctor could do to help him. And uh, they took him, they examined him, and they told my mom that he's going to die. And my mom said, Lord, poverty and other persecutions are fine, but don't take away my son. But the Lord did not answer my mom's prayer. My brother died. And before he died, he said, Mom, come and pray for me. I'm going. And my mom prayed for him. And after the prayer, he closed his eyes with a smile. And when the doctors and the nurses saw um, all the situation, they said to my mom, the God that you worship is real. We've been here for so long, we've never seen any person die in this way. I am absolutely 100% convinced that the weakness of the church in America, the superficiality of the church, the shallowness of the church, the hypocrisy of the church, is directly related to the absence of any cost or any price to pay to be a Christian. If you don't have to pay a price, hey, jump on the bandwagon. If persecution came to America, you'd see a very different kind of Christianity. A whole lot of people who are real eager to talk about Jesus wouldn't be talking about Jesus anymore. 
who professed to, to, to know Jesus and to be a part of the church, they would stop talking very fast if the price was as high as it is for some people. Enter into history by just one person. And likewise, righteousness can enter into history by one person. How could one man save the world? It can't. Why? Because sin entered into the world by just one man. And by contrast, righteousness could enter into the human race by one man too, right? So it's fair. There were many reasons why I wanted Daniel Wong to be on the faculty of the Master's College. But, but a few of those reasons, and there are many. He's a man of prayer who spends, I think, two or three hours every day of his life in prayer. He's a man of scripture. He's writing a series of New Testament commentaries. He, he's a brilliant scholar, but he understands persecution. He understands it firsthand. Our young people don't understand it. We need him. If we can't have it firsthand, we need to learn its power secondhand. And also, he has seen the providence of God work in ways that are life and death ways. And in those ways that God preserves his word. That is a priceless treasure to give to the students of this college who have the privilege of sitting in class day in and day out with him and hearing the word of God and of course hearing his own experiences of its application. Sandy used to be a master and it take us to sin, and we were slave to sin. We could not do anything else but to sin. But God has broken the ties. We have died to sin, and sin can no longer be master of us. God is very, very gracious to me that he has brought me here so that I can invest my life in the life of the students here. I work very hard. I make sure that I understand the Word of God in that I communicate it clearly, accurately, concisely so that people will know how beautiful, how sweet, how glorious, how important the Word of God is so that they will love the Word, keep the Word and through all of this know the God of the Word. Amazing. Amazing. God is doing amazing things in the hearts of those who put their faith in Him. Bring Apostle, when you're ready, <laughs> when you're ready to believe that Bible and uh, put your heart into His hands and place your faith in Him, um, amazing things will happen. You will not suffer anymore. Life won't be easy. <laughs> It'll actually probably be more challenging more difficult, more chaotic, but you'll, be, you'll have peace, truth, and love in your heart. And all challenges, all struggles, all turmoil, all conflict, you'll be a walk in the park. <laughs> and you'll enter into a kingdom, an internal kingdom of bliss and love and peace and rest in the ever after. When you put your faith in a government or in your safety, in your stuff, your pleasures, and all your false idols, then God will let you just suffer and die. It seems to be easier to place your trust in the Lord, truly surrender to and obey and serve the Lord 
when he is all you have left. When you are struggling and suffering and lost and persecuted and forgotten by the world around you, it seems easier then for people to give their hearts to God. But you don't have to be broken and beaten to do so. You don't have to be. These people in China are much more on fire for God and dedicated to live in his light under real persecution than most Christian Americans today who seem to be living for their safety, their pleasures, their stuff, their own lives here and now, and not living with eyes fixated on eternity, not living with intention to enter into God's kingdom in the forever after. As John MacArthur suggests in that clip, the weakness, the shallowness, the hypocrisy, the brokenness of the church in America is because of a lack of cost to being a Christian. There's no price to pay. There's no need to follow Jesus because most so-called Christians are comfortable, they are safe, they are satisfied, they have been victorious, they have good lives, and it would all change. All of it would go away if we were to actually face persecution. The quote, I'm not allowed on Twitter anymore, or I can't post my thoughts on Facebook persecution. <laughs> not, I'm not allowed, you know, in Best Buy without a mask on persecution, or, you know, not my insurance companies and my governments have threatened to take away the money and the tax breaks from our churches if we closed our doors, uh, <laughs> or so we closed our doors and went to only live streaming type of persecution. Yeah, not that fake phony persecution, that material possession persecution, but actual, real, costly persecution. Real challenges and real struggles that make people realize that this world is not our real home. And that the things and the stuff and the feelings of our right here's and our right now's are temporary and not worth losing our souls and our eternities over. We must refix our eyes on eternity. We must only live in this world right now and not live for this world. We must truly worship, truly trust, and truly serve the one who created us, who sustains us, who forgives us, who gives us peace, and who gives us love. We must return to God like the millions, the tens and hundreds of millions of Christians in China are doing right now. Right now. China is crushing. <laughs> Christopher Shada says, Yoda voice, suffering brings humility. Humility brings grace. Grace brings joy. Yeah. I can't do a Yoda voice. <laughs> but yes. Suffering brings humility. Humility brings grace. Grace brings joy yeah all right right on man this was a good first monday night my dudes uh <laughs> glad y'all could join me here live or be tuned in later on for the replay we're gonna end with one final clip here um so stay tuned for that in a second you're gonna either need to speak mandarin or watch it though to understand the words being sung 
But either way, it is beautiful regardless. So stay tuned. Set of Acanthus coming in hot right at the end. <laughs> yeah, like my rice hat, my rice hat. Um, epic. <laughs> yeah, rice hat. Um, but yeah, shout out said. Hope you can catch the replay of this. It was a good stream, very informative. Um, and I'll be back next Monday night. Monday night. September 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern and 8 p.m. Central Time, the true real time zone, the best time zone, 8 p.m. Central Time, Monday, September 13th, and every Monday night following that. But next week, if all works out, I'm going to be here with Classical Learner Bear. We're going to have an awesome time, awesome chat. Make sure to tune to that one live so that you can ask him questions or send me questions this week that you have for them that you want me to ask them to my Discord or my social media, private messages. And um, yeah, or just be there or catch the replay because it's going to be an amazing time. Um, yeah, 07 in the chat said, thank you, my dude. <laughs> Hope all is well with you, brother. China is crushing for sure. So until then, until next Monday night, go out this week and crush. Be like China and go crush. <laughs> the Chinese Christians are crushing. Join them. Seek and do what is good, true, and beautiful. Be on fire for the Lord and place all of your heart, soul, and mind into him and his glorious plan for us all. Trust in him with all you have, all you got, whether it be a lot or a little, and keep walking forward into righteousness, one step at a time. So have a good week, guys. Go do good, and be good, and love, and be loved. And I love y'all, all y'all. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you back here next week.
Follow Sean on social media at Sean B. Planet. His podcast audio is on the Sean B. Planet channel on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. His videos are on YouTube and BitChute. Live streams on DLive and Twitch. Blogs, links, and other stuff can be found at SeanBPlanet.com.